Hey, GeoTrackers, this is Dr. Howe. Welcome to the GeoTrack podcast. This is episode number 77, titled Extreme Weather and Aviation with Jonathan Frank. Y'all are going to love this. Jonathan Frank is a very accomplished pilot. Pilot. He's a Boeing 777 captain and also an accomplished artist. We're going to travel the world with him from the tropical Pacific to the Arctic, to the mountains. We're going to talk about the impacts of volcanoes on aviation. It's going to be a really exciting episode if you're an adventurer, an explorer, if you like flying, if you like aviation, or just learning more about the world around us, you're going to really love this episode. If you're new to the podcast, GeoTrek explores the world looking for stories that are not covered by the mainstream media. We investigate the physical processes behind extreme weather and natural disasters, their impacts on society, and what we can do to get out ahead of these events to make them uh, really less impactful and make ourselves more resilient. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Frank. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You bet, Hal. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I see you're coming all the way from Galveston, Texas today, um, where I am also. <laughs> so we're across town from each other, but here we are recording on the video. Outstanding. <laughs> hey, Jonathan, I um, was really excited to talk to you. I mean, you're a pilot. You're fascinated with aviation. You also are an expert in art. We're going to have a really interesting conversation today. But I wanted to start with aviation. How did you become so interested in aviation? Well, I had the privilege of growing up in the 1960s and 70s when the space race uh, was going on and everything was about aviation or about space and all those little kids are out there running around with our little Estes rockets or balsa wood airplanes and things like that and uh, you know that was just you know part of the deal when we were growing up um, so uh, my uncle was actually a Navy pilot he flew P3s and then uh, flew for TWA and my grandfather was actually a pilot in World War One with the 43rd Aero Squadron and he was based in France so um, it kind of runs in our family a little bit. Oh, yeah. I bet you've heard some fascinating stories from other family members from all these different uh, places and times where they were flying. For sure. And it's been it's been quite an inspiration. And uh, then, you know, being a flight instructor, I get to pass that on to others as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's 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 a wonderful lifestyle. Great career. No, that's fantastic. Um, I grew up right off the flight path for ABE, International Airport in Eastern Pennsylvania. I know you're right. from Pennsylvania originally, too. So uh, I think when you're a kid, sometimes aviation just captures your imagination, right? Oh, for sure. You sit there at the end of the runway and just watch airplanes take off and land all day. And, you know, it's like, I wish I could do that someday. I bet I could do that. You know, those lucky guys in that airplane. So And here yeah. you are living the dream, right? Absolutely. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Jonathan, it looks like, so you gained a lot of your early flying experience in the Intermountain West. Um, you were saying you graduated from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Prescott, Arizona. Right. And then you were working with Rocky Mountain Airways out of Denver for your first commercial airline job. I mean, what was it like learning so much uh, flight experience out there in the in the mountainous areas of the West? Yeah, it's um, very challenging, I would say, a lot more different than it would be down here in um, in Galveston or even in the Northeast. The mountains play a huge role in the weather there. And then what we're able to fly and what we can fly, what we can't, where we can go, where we can't go. Of course, density altitude is one of the biggest threats to small airplanes and large airplanes. As the temperature rises and at those higher altitude, the air is less dense, wings develop less lift and engines develop less power. So you're always dealing with that on uh, in those mountain areas. Uh, just so one of the things... Would you notice that even if you're taking off from Denver, for example, would you feel a difference in the density oh, of the air compared to oh, Houston? Yes, of course. Even in the 777, uh, we have performance data that is specifically for Denver 
or for those high hot altitude airports. And yeah, we use more thrust, we use longer runways, we use everything, the climb out profiles are different. Everything is a little bit different than it would be down here at sea level. You're basically flying on a small airplane, you're flying on three quarters to half power when you're flying out of Denver. Jet engines are a little bit better, they got a little bit more performance, and of course the bigger airplanes have a lot more lift uh, capability and flaps and slats and things. So it gives us more lift to get off the ground. But it still does take a lot of energy and a lot of real estate to uh, get off the ground up in those uh, altitudes. Well, let's say there's a wind blowing into a mountain range and they're getting an upslope. I mean, how high does that effect reach in the atmosphere? Like if you're flying at 25, 35,000 feet, can you yeah. feel that effect sometimes? Oh, of course. Of course you can. And the other thing is that you see sometimes over the front range standing lenticular altocumulus clouds, those lens clouds. And those are the high winds aloft that are coming over the front range. And they can actually overpower the aircraft. So there's times when you are on the backside of that and you're going to full throttle, but you're still sinking. And uh, so that's, that's one of the things as a commercial, in the commercial airline realm that we really are concerned about is um, avoiding those standing lenticular uh, clouds and that airstream. Sometimes it's avoidable, sometimes it's not and then dealing with it with the aircraft performance that you have. I lived in Boulder, Colorado for a year, and we get a lot of those downslope Chinook winds with oh, those yeah, particulars, sure. and it's it's beautiful, but I could see the concern for aviation. Yeah, a lot of times they come down and they you witness them rolling down the hills, down the front range and off into the prairie. And uh, unfortunately, that's kind of where they built the new Denver airport, was on the prairie, right where those things tend to dissipate and tend to uh, tend to locate. So yeah, we're always always keeping an eye out for that, and especially with general aviation, um, the larger jets have you know more power, more capabilities. But man, small airplanes out at the front range, you're always one eye on the weather and what are the winds aloft doing? What are the temperatures doing? What are your dew points doing? All that kind. Of, you're always always kind of looking at that, and uh, so you know for safety of flight. Yeah, for sure. It seems like, would it be accurate to say sometimes it's a more complex flying environment than, say, if you're flying into Memphis or something like oh, that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, Memphis has its own, you know, in the, in the south here has its own, you know, characteristics, such as the thunderstorms. And these thunderstorms down south can be massive, and they can go in a line, as you know, from Brownsville all the way up to Chicago, where in the uh, mountainous areas and the more arid areas, uh, they're massive thunderstorms, but we can generally fly around them. They tend to be more cellular, right? You'll get like a supercell or, or, or a cell that you can kind of go around, right? Yeah, and sometimes it takes 100, 150 miles to go around the thing, but um, they are spectacular from the air. They're beautiful, but you don't want to be anywhere near them. Jonathan, I'm really excited to kind of travel the world with you. You've been like everywhere, you know, with, with your profession and just your interest for travel and aviation. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this. I wanted to go with you out to the tropical Pacific. I know you spent some time yeah. by Guam. Um, it, it looks like you were working with Air Micronesia in Guam in 1998. I mean, what did you learn about life in the tropical Pacific? What was it like to, to live out there and, and spend time out there? And what are some of the challenges and opportunities for folks out there? Well, it's very hot and it's very humid. If you like uh, Galveston right now, you're going to love Guam uh, all year round. But uh, the thing is, it's, it's a different atmosphere, different climate, um, different attitude, shall we even say. But the things that you still look for in aviation are still the same. You're always checking whether you're looking at uh, where's your temperature dew point spread, where are 
the thunderstorms building. We were just talking about super typhoons, you know, that come through there. All that warm Pacific moisture can really generate some massive, massive storms that sometimes we, you know, have to fly around a thousand miles to get around the things. Of course, when you had to add that range, you're taking off payload, you're keeping passengers at the gate, you're, you know, keeping cargo off, you know, so um, those are some of the things you got to consider when you're flying out there. The other thing is humidity. Uh, humidity plays a huge factor in aircraft performance as well. So the heat and humidity um, can affect our takeoff and landing performance as well as our climb uh, performance and our altitude performance. Does humidity just give you like a denser air, kind of like we were talking about in the beginning? Yeah, it does, but it, it gives you more dense density, which gives you a little bit more lift, a little bit more power, but you're also dealing with the heat and then you put the two together, the heat and that, that humid weather, man, pop-up storms can happen anytime in a matter of minutes. And the vertical development, the thing that I noticed about the Pacific, which is really interesting, the vertical development of clouds, of thunderstorms, is much more rapid than it is in the United States here. It's just unbelievable how these clouds just go from little puffy cumuluses to these great towering monsters in a matter of minutes. And, uh, you know, you got you got to keep your eye on that because if one hits over the airfield, you know, you have some decisions to make. It sounds like for you as a pilot, you need to be observant, but also flexible to, to make some changes in that environment, right? Yeah, extremely. Uh, and that's the whole thing. You, we have a flight plan and it's agreed to by our dispatchers, our weather folks um, and the company and everything, well, thousands of people. But, you know, you have to be fluid and you have to anticipate what could go wrong, what could happen with the weather. Um, case in point, coming into Houston here from South America, we fly all night. And the forecasts are, you know, going to be good for landing into Houston. But I'm flying over Galveston here, and I'm seeing nothing but fog at 4 o'clock in the morning. And so it's like, okay, guys, we, we might have some other issues we need to take care of coming into Intercontinental. Maybe we need to do an auto landing, you know, instead of a regular visual approach. Or sometimes the thunderstorms uh, come off the coast and hit that. Okay, well, now that uh, closes up our arrival gates. So now we have to go to a different arrival area. So instead of coming in over Galveston, we might have to go over Palacios or go to New Orleans or actually circle back around over towards Dallas and come back in. So all those plans, you know, that, that are finely tuned can go right out the window if a thunderstorm or some bad weather all of a sudden shows up. Hey, so Jonathan, you were talking about being out in Guam, uh, Micronesia, the late, the late 90s, around 98. And then it looks like 99, you came back stateside. You were based out of Newark, New Jersey, one of the main airports for Metro New York City. Uh, that was just two years before 9-11. And you had a lot of experience flying into Metro New York. Then if you don't mind me asking, I'm just curious, where were you during 9-11? I mean, and then how did that impact you? Uh, yeah. How did that horrific day impact you personally and also professionally, you and your colleagues? Well, um, it's a day that is just, it's a black day for us in the aviation industry. Um, and uh, we lost two aircraft, uh, Flight 93 and 175 um, from, from that day. Uh, one of them went into the towers, the Boeing 767 went into the towers, and the other one landed in the field uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, I actually was at home when that happened. I was on my way to the Reno Air Races. I was going to crew for an airplane out there called Miss America P-51. And uh, when 9-11 hit, um, you know, all that, all that ground to a halt. Our biggest concern was what's gonna happen next. You know, just we had these uh, incidents here 
were there other aircraft that were going to be used as flying bombs to hit our government or hit you know, our homeland. So um, the FAA and everybody reacted very quickly and grounding everything immediately. Uh, our dispatch at United, well, it was Continental at the time, uh, sent out word, coded words immediately to drop the airplanes wherever you're at right now, just get them on the ground. And uh, so that, I think, was probably saved a number of aircraft, air crew, and passengers was that fast reaction by the FAA, um, the federal government, and um, you know the airlines to, to halt all flights right where we are. Now, we had passengers stuck in Newfoundland. We had passengers stuck in Iceland. We had passengers stuck all over the world. But the bottom line is we got everybody on the ground safely. So that was, that's, that's the hard part about that. Uh, there's plaques at our training center um, that recognize the two aircraft that went down and uh, everybody's name, all the passengers, flight crew, passenger, um, flight attendants, their, their names are uh, emblazoned on that plaque. And every time you go in the training, you see that. And, you know, it, uh, it, it gets you. It, it was but, such a horrific, tragic day just for every citizen. And then I can't even imagine, you know, being a pilot working in the aviation industry. Uh, they were a point of attack and then and then a huge impact on the industry for for months and even years after that. Right. With just yeah, there was a period I, where people were afraid to fly. I, I know economically it hurt the airlines as well. Yeah. A lot of us got furloughed um, due to the cutbacks because of that. You know, I, nobody's flying. So, you know, you still have to keep the airline in business. So many, many pilots, flight attendants, ground crew got furloughed, you know, and then we're out of jobs for, for years till the airline picked back, um, the air travel picked back up again. So yeah, it was a huge economic as well as an emotional impact. Sure. Um, for us. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know it's still a, such a tragic day. I was talking to my kids about it recently and it's just hard. It seems like it just happened yesterday. And it's just such a, such a black, dark, terrible day, you know? Yeah, you know, and I think we need to remember it. I think one thing that's happened and a uh, positive thing that has happened out of it is that our um, procedures for hijacking have changed. Uh, extreme, extreme measures have come into play. Uh, we used to be very passive about it and try to talk down the hijacker and settle them down. And now it's uh, we're extremely aggressive and, um, and taking care of the situation so it doesn't develop. Sure. That, I mean, that makes perfect sense considering what happened. And, um, you know, like the, I'm amazed at how the industry, how the aviation industry, um, is flexible and, and pivots and makes quick changes when they need to, you know, which they've definitely done in this case. Yeah. And that it's been that way since world war two, you know, since the depression, since world war two, the airline has always been able to adapt. And that's kind of the beauty of this business is that, you know, some fail, most succeed, but, you know, being able to adapt to the situation and to the world uh, world events, um, it, it it makes it part of the uh, part of the excitement, part of the challenge of this. It's true. It's always changing and very dynamic. I would say, yeah, from, yeah. from what I've heard. Um, Jonathan, I think our listeners are going to be excited to continue traveling the world with you. You know, we were talking about your time out in Guam, out in the Intermountain West. And then uh, since 2003, you've been uh, transferred to, to Wide Body International Routes. Uh, right. You're currently a Boeing 70, 777 captain. Yep. And uh, just you, you've, you were telling me about all these exotic, crazy places you've gone to. I mean, let, let's start far north uh, with the Arctic. A lot of times these transatlantic and trans-Pacific uh,
and, and probably seen all kinds of things in the high latitudes. Like what are some of the things you've seen flying through polar and Arctic regions? Yeah, one of the one of the craziest things um, during the daytime, you take off out of Germany in the afternoon and you've got a seven, eight hour flight and the sun never sets. And you land here at eight o'clock in the, you know, or six o'clock in the afternoon and the sun is chasing you the whole way. And you never see the sun set uh, as you're in that uh, polar area. So that's kind of neat. You know, it might dip a little bit towards the horizon, but then it'll come back up. Um, seeing a sunrise out of the west, that's crazy. You take off and the sun goes down and then you uh, climb up the altitude and you see the sun actually rise again in the west. That's kind of that kind of messes with your mind a little bit. Uh, polar ice cap. Oh, my goodness. The, the you know. I don't want to swerve into this about, you know, the shrinking of the ice cap because you really can't tell at this altitude. You know, if it, it's just no way to, to measure that. But the ice is so thick in Greenland that these 14, 15,000 foot mountains, only the top peaks of them are showing. And the rest of it is just buried in glacial ice. And it's just a fascinating to see that look like little hills like the Appalachians, but they're 15,000 feet down below the surface and it's nothing but ice. So there have to be like thousands and thousands of feet of ice you're saying in Greenland there. Yeah. And it's just, you can see, and as the glaciers move and they start calving and uh, you know, the icebergs start breaking up. First time I went across the Atlantic, um, you know, we're flying south of Greenland just a little bit. I'm going, wow, look at that regatta. Look at all those sailboats out there. What's up with that? You know? And, it was just nothing but icebergs, you know, thousands of icebergs, but it looked like a sailboat regatta. Well, know? I've seen that they can uh, really kind of splinter and scatter, and all of a sudden you, you, I've seen pictures where you can see thousands of miniature icebergs, right? Right, and they, they look like sailboats. They look like my little 25-foot Catalina on off its bayou. But, you know, it's an iceberg. It's, it's really, really kind of fascinating to see. And then see the current take them, see where the current will sure. take them. So they're oh, marching along. amazing. Yeah, so it looks like it looks like a sailboat regatta. It's it's kind of cool. Um, the other thing is, you know, the northern lights. The northern lights are just absolutely spectacular up there. Um, you know, the weather is so clear, and you know, that looking into the Milky Way and looking into the galaxies with no pollution, no atmospheric distortion, it's just absolutely awe-inspiring to see how many billions, as Carl Sagan would say, billions and billions of stars there are out there. Um, it just, it's absolutely, truly phenomenal to see all that just soul I mean, and that just must be amazing seeing something like the Northern Lights. You're above a lot of the pollutants and a lot of the moisture in the atmosphere, right? So you're seeing, getting a really clear view of these things. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then they go from, you know, one corner of the horizon to the other and just light up, light up the whole sky. So that's, uh, that's fascinating. You know, a lot of times the Aurora gets more active when we have like a geomagnetic storm, like that, that, that extra solar energy coming in. And I've heard that can impact communications. Has that ever, have you ever seen the impact of a geomagnetic storm? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. We uh, now we have satellite communication, satellite to to controllers um, communication. So it's not quite as bad. But uh, just up until a few years ago, uh, we were depending on HF radio. And HF is very, very susceptible to uh, electromagnetic activity, uh, solar storms, all things like that. So you're trying to get uh, air traffic control on the old HF radio, and you're you know, dialing up the frequencies, and all you're hearing is static and you know, noise and background noise and high-pitched squeals and nothing doing. You know? So, um, wow. yeah, it does, it does affect us. 
it sounds like the technology has improved going through satellites uh, reduces a lot of that, right? Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, it's actually helped us with uh, navigation. Uh, obviously, uh, satellite navigation has uh, allowed us to fly straighter routes, be on course more often, uh, save gas, and it's a safety issue as well. So as you're crossing the Atlantic, uh, you'll see airplanes at night just lined up one on top of each other for miles and miles and miles, and it just looks like coming down I-45, but you're over the you're over the uh, over the North Atlantic there. Wow, that's wild. I know. So a lot of times planes will kind of follow each other, right? Just um, they'll kind of know then what's going on up ahead. And, and just that's the quickest route too, right? Right. And so we're, we're assigned navigational tracks, what are called the North Atlantic tracks. And we're assigned a specific route with specific latitude and longitudes at a specific time that we must hit. And that's what keeps us all separated. So we're at different altitudes, but we're on these uh, nat tracks. And so you can look around and there might be a guy, you know, 10, 15 miles ahead of you, he's on the same track. I'm not following him. I'm following my what my GPS is saying, what my satellites are telling me where I'm at. Because he could be off. You know, so I don't sure. So you're just following off. your itinerary. I'm just following yeah. what, what the air, what the autopilot and, and all the computers are telling me. And again, it comes back to systems monitoring on these on these big jets. You know, you, the piloting is the takeoff and landing, and that's the fun stuff. But the rest of the time, I'm a systems monitor. And I'm making sure the autopilot, the flight computers, all the controllers are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And if not, that's when we take corrective action. Sure. I see. No, that, that's a good way to put it. It sounds like there are different phases. There's the takeoff and then there's this long stretch where you're monitoring systems and then there's a landing more or less. Right. So usually for us, you know, it depends on the weather and how, um, how dense, how much air traffic is around us. Um, but sometimes we'll fly the airplane all the way up to 18,000 feet or all the way up to our cruising altitude, then turn the autopilot on. Um, on the descent, sometimes we'll do the same thing. Top of descent, we'll turn it off and we'll hand fly it down. If the weather's beautiful and there's not much traffic around, yeah, that's great. Okay. But coming out of London Heathrow, where they expect you to fly a certain path at a th- certain speed, autopilot comes on at 200 feet. And no, that, That's fascinating. Yeah. And sometimes the autopilot doesn't come off until you're at the gate. You turn off the runway. So, so it sounds like you're saying there, there are some, some locations that are more regimented and they, they want that autopilot engaged like almost oh, immediately. Yeah, yeah. Especially Europe. The, the amount of air traffic that is, that is in the skies right now is just, well, just look at FlightAware. You know, just look at that app and see how many jets are in the sky at one time. Um, and they're all trying to come into one little area. Yeah. It gets crowded here. Yeah, it gets crowded. So some places like, you know, well, even, you know, Houston can be extremely crowded during its high peak times, three, four, five o'clock or seven to nine o'clock in the morning. It's it's extremely busy. Uh, London Heathrow, there's certain noise abatement procedures that you have to follow. So it's much more difficult to do it by hand. Turn on the autopilot. It knows where to go. It knows how to fly that. So it's just for safety and it reduces the workload for your co-pilots and your other crew members. Now we're all monitoring the systems. They're not looking for me to make a mistake and mess it up. We're making sure the autopilot doesn't mess it up. And the odds of that are, you know, me making a mistake are much greater than uh, than the autopilot doing it. If you program it right. (laughs) That uh, that really helps our listeners, I think, understand how how everything works up there. Hey, Jonathan, I want to ask you, I lived in Alaska for several years. I worked at the Geophysical Institute and we had the Alaska Volcano Observatory there. They used to educate the public and they often told us volcanoes and airplanes don't mix. Um, 
what's what's the concern of an airplane flying into volcanic ash and then like what would happen and then how how have volcanoes either coming from iceland or in the pacific or wherever how have how have uh, erupting volcanoes impacted your routes in, in your career well in i think it was 2010 the uh iceland volcano i can't pronounce this in the worst whatever that thing blew up and it shut down the north atlantic tracks altogether and for about a week and a half to two weeks everything was stopped everything was grounded because you can't fly airplanes into volcanic ash essentially what it does that ash is like a fine grit sandpaper it's like 125 or 220 sandpaper that's going through your engine and it's going through your wings and it's going through the pedostatic system that runs the the flight instruments that runs your computers and it starts eating away at them and it starts just dissolving your engines. And so it's, it's very, it's a very, very bad thing to happen. So, um, I forget what it was, but British airways, uh, they called it the Jakarta kite because they lost all four engines on a 747 due to volcanic ash. They inadvertently flew into volcanic ash, all four engines shut down on a 747 and they essentially became a glider. They were able to get the thing out of the volcanic ash, headed downhill towards Jakarta. They were able to get three of the four engines fired up again and land safely. But for, oh, I forget how many, how many miles it was, for quite a long distance, they were on emergency power, no engines, and just a 400-passenger glider heading down towards the earth. So that's wow. how serious, that's how serious it is. So this it, can it, shut down the engines quickly. Yes, it, it can. And we were just actually, my last simulator training was just flight in, inadvertent, inadvertent flight into volcanic ash. And uh, the simulators are programmed to show what happens. And the engine temperatures go up, the engines start backfiring for you know, lack of a better term right now. Uh, you start losing power. Your, all your flight instruments go wonky on you. you. You can't rely on them because the data that's coming from the air is wrong. Uh, it's, it's clogged up with sand and ash. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very, very serious, very, very serious situation. You know, and the, the, the resolution to that is get out of it as fast as you possibly can. It sounds like the aviation industry doesn't take any chances and they'll just like block off any areas that possibly could be impacted yeah. by that ash cloud. Yeah, and as you know, there's there's volcano active volcanoes in Central America, you know, and so we are every time we go out, we get a briefing from our weather and dispatchers as what planned volcanic activity is out there, what is anticipated, what could we do, um, where where it could affect due to winds aloft, high winds aloft, and then we make our flight plans accordingly. So if there's any hint of this uh, volcano going off and reaching our altitude or anywhere along our route we're going to find an alternate route to go around it. Even if it means more time, more gas, um, you know, safety is paramount. A friend of mine got stuck. It was taking a winter vacation, I think to Costa Rica. And then there was a volcano thing. And I'm like, I'm not going to feel bad for you getting stuck in the, in the tropics <laughs> right. for an extra week in January. It's like, how did you know this was going to happen? You know? <laughs> right. Right. And the thing is, even if you get the airplane on the ground and everything's fine, everybody's great. The airplane will not be able to fly again. They can't fix that airplane. It's pretty much done. Wow, so you like totaled an airplane if you fly it into an ash cloud. Pretty if much. you fly into an ash cloud that's deep enough, yes, you're going to have to replace all four engines. You're going to have to replace all the pedostatic systems. You're going to have to replace all the air systems, the hydraulics, the fuel. Yeah, it's it's a huge wow. deal. So it's not just like taking it to the Jiffy Lube and say, hey, 
fill it up with oil again. You know, no, nah, it's right. It's, this is a big deal. I, I think when I was in Alaska, they talked about ash actually has like very sharp crystals and different things like this. And it can be viscous. It can be heavy. I mean, it, it'll, it'll just really do a number, like you said, on all the systems of an airplane. Yeah. It can actually, when it gets into the jet engines, it actually turns into molten, like a lava, molten lava. And so that is get, getting chunked through your engine and spit out the back. It can flame your engines out. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's not bad. It's like pouring lava into a, into your blender. Yeah. It's a really interesting geography lesson too. You know, when the, when the Iceland volcanoes were blowing a lot of, I heard a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to Iceland. I'm just going from London right. to New York. And then it realized, you know, you far, you fly really far North there in the Atlantic and close enough that it affects all those Europe to North America routes. Oh, for sure. And of course, you know, the winds aloft, as you know, they don't just go straight, you know, and they don't stay above Iceland. They go, you know, laterally, they go horizontally, they come down to the lower latitudes, they go up to the higher latitudes, they go longitude out to the west. So, you know, it's it, that ash is being, you know, distributed by the upper upper winds. So Yeah, for you know, sure. And it can go a long way. It can go a real long way. If you remember what happened to Mount St. Helens, and yeah. when that blew, I mean, it, it shut down the airspace. I was in Cheyenne at the time, and it shut down our airspace, you know. Yeah, so, no, it, it, Volcanic ash. I know this summer we've been talking a lot about smoke from the Canadian wildfires coming right. into the States. I think people get surprised sometimes how far these aerosols can travel. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, they're light and the winds are strong. I mean, you remember what happened with the polar vortex this uh, this past winter, how much cold air that brought down to us here. That thing is up there spinning you know, all the time. It's, it's swinging around all the time. Uh, the intertropical convergence zone, the horse latitudes, all that stuff. You know, it's a lot just of complex a, stuff going on out there. A lot of complex right? stuff up there. Yeah, it's just fascinating to uh, to work with. Hey, Jonathan. So we've been talking about volcanic ash. You could almost think of it as a natural pollutant, if you will. What about like quote unquote man-made pollutants, right? So you get to some of these huge, these big cities, maybe in different parts of the world where there's a lot of maybe less environmental regulation. I mean, right. where have you seen some major man-made pollution, and then are there impacts of that on aviation? Yeah. Um, Obviously, you know, the, the mountainous areas um, and the third world countries or even second world countries, like you said, that don't have the uh, environmental regulations, those are impact us the, the, the worst. In terms of visibility, it's almost as bad as shooting an instrument approach right down to your minimum 200 feet, half a mile visibility. Um, there was one time in New Delhi, in Delhi, India, where the fog was so, the, the, the pollution was so thick the carbon dioxide, we actually had to do an auto land as if it were a zero, zero fog landing. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. Um, Bogota was bad. Uh, Mexico City was bad because it's all in that bowl, you know. And all Surrounded by mountains, right? Yeah, and it just has nowhere to go. And sometimes, unfortunately, even coming into Houston here, when we have temperature inversions, you'll see that sulfuric cloud kind of make it, uh, make it show up um, as you're coming, uh, coming up from South America during the dawn. And you'll see this orange cloud due to the temperature inversion, and you'll see the pollutants below, you know, 10,000 feet. And it's a just definitely a line, a real line of demarcation. And then it's clear above, but right there you see that orange sulfuric type cloud as we come in. So I'd, I'd, I'd imagine you're seeing more man-made or industrial pollution when you have high pressure, light winds, right? You're not getting a strong winds mixing things up. Is that generally true? Yeah, that's generally true. That's generally, or like you, you know, like we said in the springtime or wintertime beginning of that 
uh, that area when we have the, the temperature inversions. Yeah, uh, low winds and stuff like that. Yeah, that's when you really see it. But it's surprising because you think Houston, you know, okay, we got we got the manufacturing here, uh, the petrochemical industry, which is, you know, is so important for our, our economy. But, you know, sometimes you just look at that and you go, wow, that's, this is not Tokyo. <laughs> this is, this is us. So, yeah, uh, I'm, well, great, so I'm, I'm grateful for the sea breeze that can blow that out, you know, that's that right. out a little bit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The other thing that's really interesting too, is the rice fields when they start burning the rice fields here and all that smoke and haze comes mm-hmm. into us, um, that can reduce our visibilities again, similar to fog. And you mix that with maybe a fog event and then things slow down at the airport. Oh, so there can even be like an agricultural pollution, even yeah. I would imagine maybe burning sugarcane, things like that. Yep. Uh, anything that you're burning crops or b- burning vegetation. Yep. That all has that all takes a uh, huge effect on it as well. Jonathan, you not only have experience with aviation before we close out here. I, I know you're very experienced and, and talented as an artist as well. I mean, so you've been yeah. doing art, I would imagine, for a long time. I've seen some of your paintings are gorgeous. Um, how did you get interested in art? And and then you, before we started recording today, you were talking about potentially a, a gap that that not a lot of people have written about extreme weather impacting art. Yeah, um, I started drawing airplanes when I was a little kid in school. You know, I was the kid in the back of the classroom making airplane noises and Messerschmitts shooting down B-17s and P-51s and sop with camels and all that stuff. So that's how that all started. And it just uh, developed, uh, you know, throughout the course of my life. Uh, I was on reserve or standby with uh, with Rocky Mountain, and I was just spinning my wheels. And my wife said, "You're boring. You're boring me to death. You need something to do." And she got me the Bob Ross, big Bob Ross hair starter kit. And I thought, "Oh, okay, I'll try this." And one thing led to another, and now it's just yeah, been very fortunate with the uh, with the art as a sideline career as well. Oh, that's fantastic. No, I've seen some of your work is beautiful. It seems like you, you paint a lot of uh, maritime and, and natural landscapes, right? I mean, you send, tend to a lot of uh, nature and, and environmental and just kind of outdoors. Uh, yeah, it's, painting, it's, right? it's fascinating. Um, a lot of the great painters, outdoor painters from the 1600s all the way up, you know, you look at um, like the Hudson River School painters uh, who painted the America West back in the 1800s. They always had some sort of dramatic weather uh, depicted in their paintings. So you see the Rocky Mountains or the Front Range or Yosemite, and there's this big, massive thunderstorm or a beautiful sunset or the red, you know, the clouds, you know, being illuminated by the by the sun, uh, and the or a moonrise over over the ocean or something like that. So the weather is really an important part of painting. That it's not just a painting of a subject or a boat or a flower or something like that. The real great masters were able to incorporate weather into composition, how the painting looks, where your eye moves throughout the painting, and make that attractive or terrifying. You know, with uh, with storms and sea, you know, sea waves and and thunderstorms and things like that, make it terrifying. But it's all there to invoke an emotional response. And weather is the best and the easiest way, toughest to paint, but the best way to set a mood for a painting. It sure does. And it kind of takes you there. It gives you more of a sense of what that place is like, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so Jonathan, that's really, challenge. Art is really a side job for you as well, right? I mean, as a, a side career, um, how can people find you if people wanted to look at your paintings or, or maybe reach out to you? Um, it's uh, The website is C-U-A-A or Charlie Uniform Alpha Alpha dash art. ART.com. 
CUAA-ART. And it was originally Ceilings Unlimited uh, Aeromotive Art because I was doing cars and airplanes, but now it's branched out into other things as well. No, for sure. You're a very uh, diverse and well-rounded guy. Um, And I'd encourage our listeners to check out your art. I think they'll be really impressed. And thank you, you, Jonathan, for coming on the podcast and just sharing an an insider's view of what it's like to work in the aviation industry, some of the exotic and amazing sights you've seen, and and what it's like to travel and and fly in different parts of the world. Yeah, it's been a blessing, and it's been a wonderful uh, few minutes with you, and wish you all the best. Thanks again, Hal. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast. My bet. Take care. Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing those insightful and adventurous perspectives as we traveled the world with you. What an adventure it was and a really fun podcast here. I really got three take-home messages from this podcast. The number one thing that I really got was the extent to which extreme weather impacts aviation. Whether it's these towering thunderstorms that almost instantaneously pop up over the tropical Pacific, thin air over the Rocky Mountains, or some of these impacts in the Arctic and other places in the far north or far far south, uh, really the impact of extreme weather on aviation is so extensive. It seems like it's everywhere. Pilots in the aviation industry need to monitor that, be aware of these processes. And what I got too was that they have to be very flexible to sometimes change their plans in an instant. Really interesting there about that relationship between weather and aviation. The second thing I really got from this podcast is the the value of visualization. So in climate science, one of the big concerns right now are the melting of the ice sheets in places like Antarctica and Greenland. We can hear scientists talk about their models and look at graphs and charts and analysis, but to hear Jonathan talk about flying over Greenland and there are these towering mountains where you just see the peak sticking out of the ice sheet, it really gives you a different perspective of how much ice is out there on the planet. As that melts, you get the idea of sea level rise and other impacts that could affect millions of people around the world. I never quite heard of that perspective from 35,000 feet of flying over Greenland, and it, it really gave me a different angle. I think it gives all of us a different perspective on how much ice is out there and also the value of surveying the world from above, whether it's satellites, airplanes, or you know, flying over these places at a high elevation and all the things that you could see. Thank you so much for sharing those perspectives with us. The final thing, really the final take-home point that I really got from this is the wide-reaching, just how much natural disasters and extreme weather can can affect people, millions of people, billions of people around the world, and the far-reaching impacts of that. We talked about how volcanoes in Iceland can shut down aviation and air traffic from Europe to North America. You might have someone flying from New York to London and saying, hang on a second, I'm not going to Iceland, but that far north route over the North Atlantic, all of a sudden they're impacted by volcanoes in Iceland, even though Iceland was never on their itinerary. It just reminds us the far-reaching impacts of extreme weather and natural disasters on all of us, especially if we're traveling long distances. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights. Thanks as well to our listeners for making us the number one podcast on the topic of natural disasters, according to Feedspot. It's been your listenership, your support, and also sharing this content with others, liking it on social media. We love to bring you experts, adventurers, explorers, scientists, people that have really seen extreme weather and natural disasters from different angles, even if it's from 35,000 feet of altitude. Um, Thanks as well to our marketing and development team over there in Mobile, Alabama for editing this content, disseminating out. We, We have a great team that works together for every podcast episode. So it's not just me. There's a lot of folks behind the scenes as well. Everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Always a joy to come with you and explore the world on the GeoTrek podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.